thank you all again. Um, in my earlier remarks, I spoke about certainly our challenges here in the United States today, and I highlighted a few conflict areas that are represented here by either individuals or by the focus of our panel. I did not name Syria because Syria, I think, is, um, I knew we were going to be focusing a panel here, and of course, I think that conflict is at the forefront of so many of our hearts and minds, given the long and protracted, terrible humanitarian challenges that um, continue to suffer, that, that, that colleagues around the world are continuing to suffer as a result of. So we have a really remarkable and very distinguished panel of speakers today to speak about the humanitarian crisis of conflict, and we felt that Syria was a, a very important case study for us to use uh, in this regard. So again, to highlight the and to maximize opportunity for discussion, I am only going to um, just say the names of our panelists. Please do take time to read their um, still shortened bios, but these are, again, we're are incredibly privileged to have these remarkable scholars and practitioners with us. So our speakers, and we didn't talk about order. If you all, do you have an idea of order? Okay. Um, then I think we'll just go uh, according to my introduction here. So we have Fadi Haliso with us, and I'm so grateful to have him especially. You'll hear why uh, when he speaks. Aza Karam, of course, who we heard last night. Um, Anwar Khan here to my left, and Tahir Zaman. So please, let's turn uh, the mic over. Thank you, Fadi. I think this is, given your work, I think it is absolutely appropriate for you to begin this important conversation. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Hello. Uh, I will introduce myself very briefly. Uh, my name is Fadi Haliso. I'm Syrian from Aleppo in the northern part of Syria. I'm Christian and I used to be a Jesuit religious for six years. So this is why, uh, before I left to focus on my humanitarian work, so this is why talking about the intersection between religion and the humanitarian is kind of a difficult area for me to maneuver in. Uh, I can't deny the role that my faith played played in my humanitarian work, of course. As a Jesuit uh, in uh, our novitiate, we have something called the Big Retreat, which is uh, a month of uh, silent retreat to discover and discern our vocation. Uh, I've done this in Egypt because in the Middle East, the pro uh, province of the Jesuits is uh, Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, uh, Turkey and Algeria, but we all go to Egypt to have our novitiate there. And in Egypt, when I was there, the tensions between the Christian community and the Muslim community was high, especially during the last two years of Mubarak's uh, mandate. And it was for me a difficult time, witnessing also what is happening in Iraq and the attack on the Deliverance Ladies' Church in Baghdad on Sunday. So I had some hard feelings as a Christian from the Middle East toward the extremism that is going on. I was asking God why the moderate Muslims aren't doing anything. And in, the, in my retreat, 
we have something at the end called the meditation to attain love. In this meditation, uh, after discovering how God loves me in a per very personal way, how God loves everyone in a very personal way, I was uh, taken by Isaiah, uh, who was saying about how God has written our names on his hand. And in my last meditation, I had like somehow a mystical experience where I saw uh, God and one of the saints of the Catholic Church asking me to love everybody with Thérèse de Lisieux. Uh, I saw like myself with her throwing uh, roses on the world uh, and she was asking me to love everybody. So I was asking myself, how could I love everybody, even those uh, extremists or the evil people? who are making all this evil. And I found my, uh, the answer gradually uh, throughout the next two years. This was in 2009, and uh, I arrived to Lebanon in 2010 when the Arab Spring began. Uh, during this period, I discovered many examples of people. I met an Iraqi woman who was working with the Jesuit refugee service in Aleppo, in a center, she was a Christian. And she told me about a similar experience where, where she had uh, internal healing of her feelings toward the Muslim community when she started working with kids in one of the GRS centers. In the Arab Spring, uh, in the first month, I saw in this response for my pra prayers. And I felt that, as the Jesuits say, that God was preparing me throughout the last two years for this moment. So when the uprising in Syria began, I found myself uh, automatically taken by, the, by what is happening, helping, uh, expressing that what is happening uh, is not uh, an extremist movement, is not a religious war, it is a, a, an act of uh, freedom and uh, rights from the people of Syria. I tried to explain that my position as a Christian and as a religious at that time wasn't a position against anyone, not against the government or not against the president or anyone, but it was an act of solidarity with the people who were asking for the, their basic rights. And I never saw a religious war in what is happening in Syria. Now, six years later, it is easier to say, and uh, this is a war between Sunni and Shia, but this wasn't... Uh, what is happening, and for me, sometimes I feel shocked when the, those who know about Syria and the region uh, rush to say, oh, you have a terrible civil war between Sunnis and Shia, right? And you must be suffering as Christian, but this is not uh, the case. Yes, religion is in the center of what is happening in Syria, but it is important to understand how and why. In Syria, I think every researcher of you will find uh, a good uh, soil for research and data because we have everything. We have the, the very good examples and the very bad examples of the, both the secular and the religious uh, institutions. But to understand what is happening, we have to go back a little bit in history. Uh, Syria as a state in its current border was drawn by a treaty between the French and the British in 1917. It was known as the Sykes-Picot Treaty. 
uh, and then we were put under the French mandate, which was an occupation uh, who ran the country for like 20 years. We got our independence in 1946. So Syria as a state is a very uh, new thing. Uh, before that, the Islam came to Syria in 638. So for like 13th century, Syria was part of the Islamic uh, uh, empire uh, with the Umayyad first, with the Abbasids then, then the Ottomans. And the notion of the Islamic Ummah is very strong in Syria, in the whole region. The, the concept of the national state is something very new. Uh, so, in contrary to what is known in the Western world, that the national state is something done, a concept that all of the citizens do agree on, this is not the case in the Middle East. This is a very modern and new concept that didn't, wasn't rooted in deep uh, in the culture or uh, the concept. And the Ummah is still something uh, uh, Muslims dream of in very different uh, uh, shades of things. For them, uh, the period of the Islamic, uh, uh, Ottoman, Islamic Empire, especially with the Ottoman, was the period of glory, uh, not as now. Uh, the national state in the Arab region has failed this, its citizens. Since the independence, we were governed, unfortunately, by military dictatorships who failed to achieve uh, freedom and dignity for the people of this region. So people have lost their faith in the national state and most of them recognize that the only glorious moment in our history was uh, with the Islamic Ummah and the Islamic Empire. And you know what, who understood this very well? ISIS. And their, uh, their symbolic gesture of removing the Sykes-Picot uh, borderline between Iraq and Syria few years ago when they expanded to Syria was a very uh, clever message to the Islamic youth in the, in the region and around the world that we are going to achieve what you dream of, a state that gives you dignity and your right uh, position in the world. Of course, they are doing it the, in the, the wrong uh, way. But this is why I wanted this uh, introduction to tell you that religion is something important in our region. We cannot talk about national states, we cannot talk about uh, human rights without in the understanding the importance of religion in the national identity. This is an important component of this identity that most of the time is ignored by Western scholars, but also by uh, local scholars who are influenced by the West. And while the secularism and the national state are something that took its time in the West to materialize through hard religious war between Catholic and Protestant in Europe until finally the Europeans decided to separate religion from the state. We never had this before in the region. We never had this hard religious war at this big extent. So, and uh, one important aspect also is that when the French occupied Syria, for instance, they never encouraged national identity. At the contrary, they encouraged uh, secular ident uh, religious identity. Actually, few people know that the French, upon their arrival to Syria, have divided Syria into four religious states, one for the Alawites, one for the Druze community, and two for the Sunnis, 
while Lebanon was meant to be a Christian state for the Maronites. And uh, it, it was a policy of divide and conquer. Yes, we divide these people to its basic identities, to the, uh, the religious ones, so we can uh, easily control them. And why the Syrians has opposed this policy and demanded <coughs> unified Syria, uh, and this is what they got with the independence, the rulers who ru ruled Syria afterwards understood this very well, and they tried to do the same, uh, especially with the rule of the Ba'ath Party. The Ba'ath Party also ignored the Syrian identity. The Ba'ath Party, in, since its arrival to power in 67, 63, uh, has tried always to uh, advance the Arab identity on, uh, on the expense of the Syrian identity. So Syria wasn't present. This is what was on the front, but in the back, uh, backstage, they were also encouraging religious identity. They were using religious leader and religious uh, institutions to control the components of Syria. So this is why the Christians, during uh, the, uh, the rule of Hafez Assad and Bashar Assad, were given a certain liberties, and the religious leaders were given certain liberties, because it is easier to control a bunch of religious leaders than to, uh, who control their followers than to have a real civil society that uh, institutions flourish there and where democracy can have uh, horrible results for dictators. Uh, so yes, uh, for the last 40 years we were living in Syria in isolated communities that do not know each other. And this is led us to what, where we are, where we can uh, al always regard the other in fear and anticipation of what would happen. This is why it was very difficult for the communities to engage in a national discourse. What about humanitarian work? In humanitarian work, we see similar uh, mechanisms sometimes of uh, those political ones that were used uh, in Syria. We see by the international community uh, sometimes in encouragement of practices where, that give more power to religious leaders uh, instead of uh, civil society or in, instead of institutions. Uh, money, uh, aid money is power, and money is power. So we, we've seen many examples of uh, ways that uh, other uh, states or other uh, religious in institutions, whether Muslim or Christians, are trying to influence what is happening in Syria through, through religious uh, institutions. Uh, I felt, I told the Tara that sometimes we feel we can uh, slip into uh, the, the romanticization of the religious actors as the, the, they are the best uh, actors or the ones who know the ground very well, which is true. Most of the time, in a disaster situation, religious actors are the first responders. But it doesn't mean that uh, our engagement with religious actors should be unconditioned and unaccounted uh, accounted for, unmonitored. Mm -hmm. uh, religious actors and local actors are doing a great job in Syria. They are the ones who are risking their life on a daily basis to deliver aid on, to besieged areas uh, under the shelling. Once ISIS was present in the northern part of Syria, all of NGOs withdrew from there and they were uh, delegating the risk to their national staff. And most of them are doing this out of religious uh, sentiments, out of uh, national sentiments. 
But, uh, but of course, uh, this has also a very uh, a negative also uh, consequences, uh, a negative side of the story. One of the, for instance, we do appreciate the uh, willingness of many of the humanitarian workers to work with, through religious actors and through uh, local actors. But sometimes we, hear, we see them do this in a way that make compromises that aren't asked uh, for. I gave an example in the morning to one of our colleagues, to many NGOs who, while opening schools for Syrian refugees, they were automatically separating boys from girls because uh, some influential religious leaders on the ground were asking for this, whereas this wasn't the norm in Syria before. Whereas we do have to challenge sometimes those norms and those traditions, even if they were asked for by some influential uh, religious leadership. Also, we have to make sure, just my last word, we have to uh, highlight that most of the religious uh, actors who are working and giving a very good examples are ones who are driven and inspired by their religions, by the values of our religion. I have a very good example here for a group called, uh, a Syrian group called the Mulham team, which are mostly uh, compromised of, uh, comprised of uh, Syrian volunteers who are Muslims, pious Muslims, uh, and they have developed throughout the years a very interesting model where, that puts beneficiaries in the heart of the humanitarian work, not the project proposals and all the heavy system. Uh, they have now uh, an, an online platform where, where they ask for donations on a case-to-case basis. Uh, they appeal to the religious feelings of their uh, audience in Arab Gulf countries and the Muslim world. They present the cases in a very dignified uh, and respected way. Uh, that respect the values, respect the dignity of uh, the human being. And they are doing a great job. Actually, one of uh, their campaigns in Madaya last year, when Madaya was besieged, uh, they, in, in this campaign they raised $1 million in 15 days by just appealing to, <coughs> to their uh, Muslim brothers around the world. And they were one of the rare groups who took this risk to go collect money and go to these besieged areas, even though they had to make some deals with the devils sometime to get the money to its beneficiary. Uh, as I said, I will have a lot to say about Syria, but I am sure that my other colleagues have other examples to highlight on the, this uh, important intersection between the religion and humanitarian work. Okay, thank you. Thank you. This is terribly challenging for all of us, and we want to hear from much more from all of you than the 10 minutes we're allotting. But so thank you for, for all of you for trying to stay within that limit, and we'll continue conversation following. Aza, please. Thank you very much indeed. And um, I think I, I would want to deliberately and intentionally pay tribute to Fadi, um, not only for the work that he himself does, but for that very powerful sharing. Um, especially of that personal journey, which I think is something that we all stand to learn from and that is very humbling in, in terms of the magnanimity of the emotions that you have expressed. So thank you very much for sharing that. I would hope that I am 
one of the millions of moderate Muslims who are trying very hard to do something in a context which is extremely difficult um, to manage. Um, I think this, you've set the, the scene beautifully because you've mentioned exactly two of the key elements of what the Syrian humanitarian dynamic is confronting all of us with, particularly from the religious uh, perspective, looked at from the religious angle. We're able to understand a little bit, I hope, that the colonial legacy is very, very strong in the Middle Eastern region, um, which also explains, by the way, why those of us who have been working on outreach with faith communities and religious organizations uh, at, the in, at the global level and at the regional level have found the Middle East region to be one of the most intractable in which to undertake some of that outreach and faith-based engagement. Because the polarization that is not only between the secular and the religious, but also intra-religious and the sectarian polarization has only increased phenomenally in the last few years and the Syrian dynamic has compounded an already tense and fraught series of uh, intra and inter-religious dynamics in the region. But it has also compounded uh, what has been a very long-term reality that Fadi referred to, which is the instrumentalization of the religious by the political and vice versa, the instrumentalization of the political by the religious. In the Middle East, the relationship between religion and politics is almost as ingrained in the everyday psyche and the social consciousness and the social operationalization as religion itself is very much part of the everyday lingo and language. We find it often extraordinarily hard, those of us who have studied the politics of religion and religious politics, very, very hard sometimes to distinguish between that which is the religious discourse and that which is a political discourse. Claims to legitimacy by regimes across the region ever since the colonial era have always been cloaked with and in religious garb. Claims to political authority since the colonial era have always been um, part of what the religious communities and institutions in particular will often try to aspire to and or take hold of. And this is not only a feature of the Muslim context, this is also a feature of the Christian domains and contexts. Um, it is no surprise that we continue to have a very intractable uh, conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians, which today, if you read, seems to be a conflict between Muslims and Jews, which is highly, highly uh, wrong as a narrative, because the Palestinians are Muslim and Christian. So the notion that we have now so neatly categorized it into a Muslim-Jewish context is actually the rhetoric that, that that communities and organizations that are um, like ISIS, but also before them the Brotherhood and others, have actually adapted that this is a holy struggle, which actually, quite frankly, I'm very sorry, but it isn't uh, Muslim-Jewish uh, uh, tension. It, there are definitely elements of that, but that is not the Palestinian-Israeli uh, or the whole of the Palestinian-Israeli issue. We have played into that rhetoric. Uh, by, by looking at it in compartmentalized forms as such. And we risk doing the same, as Fadi has highlighted, when we look at and when we try to understand what's going on in Syria. It is not uh, a matter of Shia-Sunni dynamics. It can be easily simplified into that, but if we simplify easily, we also lose the truth. 
And the dynamic of what's going on in Syria is fundamentally a question of political legitimacy and religious longevity. It's a question of interreligious and political cohabitation that goes back a long time. It's where we have a legacy of disagreement that, that the, for lack of a better word, that us as, as locals, I hate that term, but us as locals haven't really quite managed to, to get rid of or to enhance as a discourse. So there is a very strong political element in the religious dynamics, there's a very strong religious element in the political dynamics. In fact, again, hard to make that, draw that line very often. So this is the, the politics side of things that I think is very important to keep in mind. One of the legacies of what we are witnessing in Syria today is, um, whether we like it or not, a, a, a rife sectarianism and a, um, a, an underlining of the intra and interreligious tensions that exist within the region. It's a truth, it's not something we like, but that's exactly one of the things that we have to confront. So there are those political dynamics to bear with. What I find very interesting is there are a lot of organizations, um, international, regional, national, who are jumping on this boat because this is good business. This is an opportunity to try to bring the religious together to show that they can bring peace to the country. Now, I'm not quite sure how that would happen given that you have a, a governance entity there, a regime that is using, as you've also heard from Fadi, that is using the religious uh, fear-mongering as one of its elements of continuing to keep stability and to be in power. It is very hard to see how you're going to have the religious who are themselves being used and manipulated and divided by the political. Hard to see how this religions, relig world of religions in Syria or in the region will suddenly come together to be the peacemakers and broker the peacemakers. It begs the question that many of us struggle with um, in the context of religious engagement, which is who represents which community? Who are the spokespersons for the religious communities? Is it religious leaders? And we've obviously shot that point, I hope, to the to heavens, because it's not just religious leaders. Yes, they are important, but they're not the only, and we should never essentialize it to them. But then if the question becomes, well, if it isn't the religious leaders, who would it be in a context where you have that strife, where part of the strife is becoming increasingly um, go, uh, cloaked in the religious garb. Who then do you bring around the table? And it, it is fascinating for me to see that the organizations which have sought, or the countries that have sought hardest to bring together this dynamic of religious peacemakers have also been the ones with some of the strongest legacies of, of suspicion. In other words, we found certain countries and organizations in certain countries, in this one in particular, but not the only, who have rushed to try to see how they can bring together the religious leaders to be peacemakers in Syria. And you think, really, seriously? You're already seen as part of the problem? How is it that you're going to bring the peacemakers? Whom are you going to bring around the table? So important to bear in mind that this tension between the religious and the political is because it characterizes what's going on and because it defines what's going on is, all, and is also what we have to grapple with and that comes to the fore. So let's look at the money element because it's um, politics, money, and sex. Um, I'll get to the sex last because then we can wrap up. Um, and probably that's the only thing that will remain. Um, money, you've already heard. We are talking about a moment of um, 
money flows that are coming in for this humanitarian crisis. A significant number of the billions that have been requested, 23 billion has been put on the table or asked for by the, by, by the United Nations. By the way, once again, I am not speaking for the United Nations. I happen to work in the United Nations. I am not speaking for the United Nations, just that we clarify that. Um, uh, 23 billion has been the ask from the, from the international community. A significant number of that amount, I do not know the statistics in detail and I never will, but a significant number of that is unfortunately being provided by certain countries in the same region, the Gulf countries. Um, how much can we claim that the Gulf countries are neutral actors in the entire region and particularly in Syria, Iraq, I think is a huge question mark. There is a, 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 a deep sense of consternation. Um, as an Egyptian, I speak from the experience of the Gulf countries' own interventions in Egypt. And by all means, it has not been a homogeneous intervention as two Gulf countries try to grapple with each other over who's got more influence and they're on opposite sides <coughs> of, of the thing. So it's not exactly fun to know that you're going to be receiving it, that endorsement financially because it comes with strings. It never comes without conditionality. And the conditionality is unfortunately very strongly connected to making sure that the religious strife is part of the issue. So we have this very serious concern about where the money is coming from and how we manage it. I will end on sex. And I'm not sure how many of you are aware of the fact that, early, that the rates of early marriage in Syria and Iraq have increased. Um, very young girls getting married. Uh, ostensibly to help protect them because of the dissolution of the social infrastructure. The social mechanisms of family are completely um, threatened. The, the, the notion is that you, you had better marry your daughter off uh, so that she can be protected uh, by her husband um, or her husband's family because the rates of um, uh, abuse of uh, women have increased remarkably, contributed to not just by the context of the conflict, but contributed to, thank you very much, by what you all must have heard of because it has been so glamorously portrayed, which is ISIS's own horrific use and abuse of girls and women um, in the region, particularly from the religious minorities. So we have this bizarre dynamic or maybe perfectly understandable dynamic of rates of marriage increasing, by the way, across the region, also in Iraq and in Yemen and elsewhere. So that conflict is leading to higher rates of early marriage rather than what we were hoping we were institutionalizing legally as the uh, better rate of marriage, et cetera, et cetera, or the um, uh, appropriate age of marriage. But we're also talking about an interesting phenomenon, uh, which is women fighters. We have a significant number of uh, women who have become part of the front lines. Um, they're part of the front lines for ISIS. They're part of the front lines running away from ISIS. They're part of the front lines for the Kurdish fighters who have their own brigades to fight ISIS. Um, we are suddenly um, in that region flooded with a phenomenon that we have yet to uh, research or understand, which is women warriors. We had this in, in Algeria and so on during the, the liberation struggles. We've never had it at this level in terms of the number of women who are actively fighting on all sides. So we have a very interesting future to look forward to and we have a context where religious dynamics play a role in motivating these women on all sides. So where do we look at that particular, how do we see that evolving? I am so out of time. Also, thank you. <laughs> thank you.
I, I don't like this role. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you, Aza. And we'll turn now to Anwar Khan. Thank you. Asalaamu Alaikum. Peace be with you all. Um, I apologize if I'm going to be crying or sneezing my way through the presentation. Please bear with me. This, we're talking today, I was very surprised by the uh, symposium. We're talking about language and religion. Really wanted to thank the organizers for organizing this. We don't understand how important language is and terminology and literacy. Really, I wanted to thank Diane Moore. I don't know how she found out about me, but thank you for bringing me here and pulling this panel together. Very rarely do I find people from the Middle East or Muslims talking about Muslim issues or the Middle East. So I don't know what happened today and how you were able to find four of us, but really, thank you. Um, very surprising, but um, nice surprise. Thank you to my colleagues in Oxfam for not just putting this together, but the wonderful work you all do everywhere around the world. Thank you to the Henry Luce Foundation that I never heard before. That's my own problem. Thank you um, for the work that you do and bringing us together and helping us to think. And then the next question is what are we going to do about it? So if we're talking about literacy, we have labels and we have biases when we look at people. So I'm going to throw a few, lab throw, throw a few labels about myself. Pakistani, British, American, Muslim, humanitarian. I am not Arab, but I'm talking about Syria. And I would argue I don't have to be Arab to talk about Syria. Uh, my f colleague on my left, Fadi, is not Muslim. He's Christian. And Christianity came to Syria before Islam did. It's an honor to be here with my um, humanitarian brother who has come from the region. So I really wanted to thank you for that. Two minutes gone, eight left. So real quick now. <laughs> the um, Arab Spring. No, I came with my iPhone. I came with my iPhone. So um, very quickly, Arab Spring. This is a result of the Arab Spring. This is not a religious conflict. However, religion has become part of the conflict now. was not the reason. They wanted freedom. They got bullets. We didn't know what to do at the beginning as a humanitarian player. People saying, oh, well, we need to raise money. For what? They're demonstrating for freedom. It's not a humanitarian problem right now. Later on, it became. Then we threw out name, words like Alavi, Shia, Sunni, Kurds. Kurds, that's not a religious issue. That's an ethnic issue. And then we're arguing, are Alavis really Shia? What kind of Sunni? We're talking about foreign fighters going to ISIS. Well, you know, foreign fighters are also going to support Assad government. Shias are coming from Afghanistan, from Iran, from Lebanon to support the Assad government. It's not just the foreign fighters going to support ISIS. There's American and European fighters who are from different religions joining the Kurdish militia too. There's foreign fighters coming from everywhere. When we look at religion in Syria, we're looking often at ISIS and we're looking at the beheadings and the people being burnt alive. Most of those who are the victims of ISIS are Muslims, are people from that area. 
the people from the area when they look at religion, whether that be Islam or Christianity, they look at it as a religion of mercy, compassion, accountability, sincerity. Not the way we look at it. And they expect their faith-based humanitarian organizations to be more accountable, more sincere, and more compassionate than the secular organizations. This has been my experience in Chechnya, in Mali. It's always um, women that tend to tell me off the most. I was surrounded by women, my mother, my three sisters. <laughs> my father died when I was very young, so I'm used to getting told off by women all the time. But they seem to be able to be very frank everywhere. And again and again, it's the same thing. They come up and we expect more from you because you have a religious name than the secular actors. So what are the strengths of faith-based organizations? They have local knowledge. They've been there for millennia sometimes. We came up with the UN in the last century and humanitarian principle and different stuff. But if you look at the great religions of the world, they already had humanitarian aspects, develop, development um, organizations. They just don't call it that. But they've been around a lot longer than any of us. So we need to go there with some humility and not with arrogance. They know their recipients, they have their own resources, whether that be financial buildings that they have, whether those be houses of worship that they can use for humanitarian work, whether it be orphanages, hospitals, um, schools, whatever. And also they have their own volunteer base. And they can reduce tension in a way we can't. So when you have, for example, um, imams in the case study that I was given in um, Irbid, Jordan, they're reminding people that in Islam, in the time of the Prophet Muhammad, he himself was a refugee. This is an Islamic thing to do, which is to accept refugees. So they can bring it in a context which maybe others cannot. For secular organizations, what's the advantage? We've got more people on the ground that can help and they can't be related to one particular sector or the other. That's an advantage that they bring. The other um, advantage that they're seen as bringing, according to the case study, is money from governments. They believe international governments will not be supporting faith-based actors, and there's a bias against uh, people of faith who are working in those areas. And secular organizations are seen as having access to some of that money. Now, what's the drawbacks of the faith-based organizations? Again, in the case study, they're saying that the faith-inspired international organizations, not just the secular ones, are seeing the local faith-based organizations as not being as professional or as accountable as they need to be. And then some people are saying that the faith-inspired, faith-based organizations are more similar to their secular counterparts than they are to the local faith-based organizations. So you can't, again, just put everything in nice little um, labels. A main concern for, about local faith-based organization is proselytization. We hear that again and again, that is a concern. Also, we're having to explain to some of them what the rights-based approach is. So we come in, we've got our international money, we want them to abide by our rules. But we have to build their capacity up. So we believe we're here. We believe they're here. So how are we going to change their accountability? How are we going to improve it? 
And is it just so we get our international grant, which is going to expire in three years anyway? Is it worth the hassle for them to learn our language if we parachute in and we parachute out? When um, secular organizations come from outside, they're seen as outsiders that aren't going to be around for long. And when we use the word faith and secular, these are our terminology. One of the organizations mentioned in the report was, um, this is a secular organization in Jordan. That their purpose is to create a generation that believes in Islam. And they, they believe they're secular. They are not faith-based, but they want to create a, a generation that believes in Islam. So, resources are not only coming from the local organizations and the local people in Syria, in Jordan. They're also coming from the Gulf, they're also coming from Turkey. The money that we're sending from Geneva, from uh, uh, Brussels, or from New York is not the only international money being played. And when we look at the money from the Gulf, we often look at it, well, they don't believe in the same values as us. Let's have a little bit of humility. They come with their biases, so do we. Everyone comes with their bias, nobody's really neutral. But we have to remember that there is international money now coming from big players from the Muslim world that was not the case a few decades ago. So, um, one um, innovative um, um, idea I was asked to talk about was, um, we're talking about peace building. And I'm a little bit concerned when people look at religious organizations. I know as you share this all the time, they think we can do peace building. We are a humanitarian organization but we worked with the Lutheran World Federation together to do a peace building between the Jordanian host community and the Syrian refugees. And this is mentioned in the case study. Um, I think it wasn't just that we were doing it, but when Muslims and Christians can work together and not talk about peace, but practice it, I think that has a positive effect on the community over there. The, um, Okay, can I take one more minute? Yes. I'm 10 seconds over. So, um, we want to see how the Imams can help with this issue about young girls getting married. We need to motivate them, we need to work with them. From a Islamic point of view, you cannot force marriages. You cannot exploit women. So let's find a way that and I think faith-inspired organizations who are from the faith, same faith, bless you, are more in a better position to talk to the imams. I wouldn't talk to a Christian priest. I would ask Fadi or someone from that faith. In the same way, let's have some humility when we talk and not see faith leaders as either the saviors or as the criminals. We have to work with them. And the way our body language, the way we talk to them, they're not false. They know when we don't respect them. So, um, again, thank you to the organizers. Um, my 10 minutes are up. But um, again, really thank you so much for um, bringing us all together. And my question to you is now, all of you, before you ask us questions, I'm going to ask you a question. What are you going to do about what you heard today and yesterday? What difference does it make by coming here? And how are you going to change the world and make it a slightly better place from what you learned yesterday and today? Thank you.
Thank you. <laughs> Tahir, please, thank you. Thank you, Diane. Um, thank you to uh, my esteemed panelists here for setting out the complexities around Syria. Uh, Fadi, especially for your testimony there, it was very uh, heartfelt and uh, an important intervention there. Um, I want to start with a question, uh, and I want people to think about this. Um, is, is humanitarianism uh, compatible with religion? And I ask this seriously, because the logic under which humanitarianism, uh, especially in the context of conflict-induced displacement, operates, is around the idea of host and guest. Okay, it's around hospitality. And when we think about the way in which uh, in the humanitarian field, and it is a field, it's not a, a neutral space, this is a, a contested field, right? The way in which uh, humanitarian, uh, the, the humanitarian infrastructure talks about host societies, uh, talks about reception centres, talks about guests, um, but we all know that a guest is, is not, you know, uh, forever welcome, right? You know, there's a limited welcome to that. The work of uh, Jacques Derrida here is very important, right? So the idea of, you know, encountering somebody and what do you give up? What of yourself do you give up? How much space do you make available? for the stranger that you encounter. And argue, I would argue that, in fact, religion goes beyond just mere hospitality. Religion allows people to transform. But when you have a humanitarian infrastructure, especially during protracted refugee crises, which can stretch on for 20, 30 years, and if we think about protracted crises, which are uh, 25,000 people over five years or more, um, there's 30 such situations uh, in the world. Six and a half million people are, are living through these sort of uh, protracted crises. Uh, you cannot be host forever. It tires you out, you get tired. You can't sleep on the couch forever. It tires you out. We need to be able to transform. And I'm wondering whether there's the two, a religious understanding and humanitarian, are they reconcilable? Do they transpose over one another like this? Can they integrate? Or are they at odds with one another? And, and this is borne out through the experiences of the displaced. I mean, a lot of time here we're talking about these in institutional perspectives, which are a bird's eye view, top down, looking at the way in which religion can be operationalized and so on, right? But from the perspective of displaced people who I work with, uh, they time and again say the humanitarian regime makes them feel like numbers. We're not a number, we're not a file case. We're human. And this is something which comes up time and time again. So the way in which the human, humanitarian actors, agencies, encounter the displaced is very important. So I want to talk a little bit about um, uh, the self-reliance of displaced people themselves 
and about diaspora communities and where religion fits into all of this. So in the context of Syria, the Turkish-Syrian border space has become transformed into a site in which a nascent Syrian civil society operating in non-regime-held areas of Syria establishes relationships with international NGOs, agencies, and the wider Syrian diaspora. Syrian self-help initiatives have flourished across border towns and cities in Turkey. Here, they function as nodal points, tapping into the resources of broader networks of self-reliance, acting as outlets for uh, a proto-civil society. And as Fadi was saying, in Syria, it's, a it's been a dictatorship. You know, the idea of a civil society was new. Syrians didn't really know how to talk to one, of, no, to, to one another, let alone listen to one another. You know, under the fear of what uh, the Syrian regime would do, whether the, those are those who are outside in uh, outside in the diaspora or those who who are inside Syria. Um, so the conflict in Syria has produced arguably uh, a moral economy of diaspora, or a solidarity network extending beyond family, wherein wherein diasporic actors feel obliged to support those whose circumstances have unraveled in the face of conflict uh, to reduce the effects of insecurity. So here, diasporic actors have mobilized personal and professional networks to reach communities close to their hometowns. For some, this included nascent networks of local coordinating committees, which emerged uh, in the wake of uh, the Syrian revolution introducing them to struggles in different parts of country aside from their hometown. It also established Turkish-Syrian border towns as an integral space from which a global Syrian diaspora converged to connect with one another and newly displaced Syrians to organize humanitarian aid into Syria. In the case of Syrian diaspora, solidarities and cross-cutting ties can be found between a vast array of transnational actors, including faith-based actors, who are nested within and across diasporic communities. Faith-based organizations responding to humanitarian crises are arguably, arguably really, two minutes? Okay. Are arguably uh, part of a wider diasporic, uh, diasporic formation. For such formations, how to be and how to belong is influenced not only by existing connections in home or host country, but shaped also by relations, imagined or otherwise, with others around the world who enjoy the shared affiliation along the lines of religion, profession, ethnicity, or language. Moving beyond the binary of inside and outside, we can begin to think of a refugee diaspora more fluidly as a rhizomatic or a horizontal network of self-reliance along which transnational actors engage in self-help initiatives, connecting, building, and strengthening relationships with different actors at multiple nodal points. Now, while there's certainly an element of overreach in broadening the term diaspora to include faith communities, given that there's no idealized return to a country of origin or homeland, acknowledgement of cultural and deterritorialized dimensions to diaspora open up what Robin Cohen calls the possibility that spiritual affinity may generate a bond and analogous to that of a diaspora. This is what Anwar was relating to, where being Muslim means that you know, we care about what happens uh, in Syria. 
And a salient example of this, where diasporic consciousness intersects with religious affinity, can be found in West Yorkshire. You might ask, what's West Yorkshire got to do with um, Syria? So in West Yorkshire, there's a, there's a local charity based there called SKT Welfare. The patron of this charity is a Sufi sheikh originally from Damascus, uh, Muhammad al-Yaqubi. Mobilizing his growing network of followers in the United Kingdom, predominantly Muslims from South Asian diaspora, Sheikh al-Yaqubi has provided SKT welfare with a credible reach into Syria and a network of Syrian aid workers and volunteers that few international humanitarian actors have access to. This has allowed the organization, which prides itself on volunteering and private donations, it doesn't get any funding from governments or it's privately funded, uh, to operate in hard-to-reach areas such as Al-Ghurta and Dara. The organization also cooperates and partners with other Turkish uh, faith-based organizations which act as vectors, allowing people to go into uh, allowing uh, humanitarian actors to go into uh, Syria. So for many Syrian diasporic actors engaged in self-help initiatives, whether they mobilize religious language or symbolism, is contingent on where, where they're located and who their audience is. So what I'm saying is diaspora isn't just monolithic and, you know, it's, it's plural. Yeah? How the diaspora behaves in, uh, from uh, its positionality in the Gulf is very different to how it behaves uh, from, from Europe. And as I said, it's, it's more of a network of self-reliance. You know, it flows into and out of Syria, both ways. Right? And along that network, you have these uh, numerous self-help initiatives. I came across one, we could perhaps talk about in question and answers, in Athens, when we look at um, you know, refugee to refugee solidarity initiatives, right? And how they are supported by the diaspora in order to be able to engage in the humanitarian field. Because as I said in the beginning, it's a humanitarian field and the displaced themselves are actors within this field. And we should never forget that. And how they understand both humanitarianism and religion is uh, fundamentally important. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank, excuse me. Thank you all again. And so I'm so sorry to have been so rigorous with my timekeeping. Please, let's open up the conversation questions for the floor. Please, again, identify yourself. Try to keep your questions and comments brief so that we can get as many in as possible. Yes, go ahead. Thank you. Hi, uh, Karen Feinberg. Could use the microphone, please? Thank you. Karen Feinberg, Feinberg Consulting, affiliated with the Graduate School of Education at Harvard. Um, just at the very end of what you were saying, it, um, I was thinking about economic social development and integration of immigrants and diaspora communities within uh, economies. And there's a paper uh, that I've been exposed to, I haven't read it all, through a group called NESTA, 
which is a social innovation foundation based out of the UK, and someone created a wonderful paper about how to integrate um, immigrants, refugees into creative industries, for instance. So I'm thinking about um, that complexity of that tied to faith and religion when you're also working on economic social development issues. So I'd like you to talk about that and what governments need to think about and what, you know, the whole ecosystem, um, because that of course is important, the economic social development and the creativity, um, especially with young people. How do you integrate young people to channel that creativity in healthy ways um, that can be empowering for them and also for the communities? Shall I take that question or maybe you know? I, I think, go ahead and respond, yes. Okay, so, as I said, I mean, when we think about religion, I think Azza was making the point yesterday that we can't just uh, silo it, you know, and just say this is religion, because it permeates into pretty much everything, social, cultural, political, economic, right? So, to kind of engage with displaced people, we have to understand, all right, you know, we don't want to silo religion in the engagement with displaced people. So how do we understand displacement? And part of that is thinking about the flip side. It's Janus faced. It's not just displacement, it's emplacement. Mm -hmm. Right? And this is important. Because what, what have they been displaced from? And what is that emplacement about? It's arguably about the loss of home. Mm -hmm. And what I, would, what I call the erosion of a right to neighborhood or neighborliness. Mm -hmm. yeah, this is what it's about. And this is something that we find in the Syrian context, right? That when the revolution started, it's this erosion of a right to neighborhood, which was kind of um, instigated by the state itself, right? So if you think about the north of Syria before 2011, we shouldn't think of 2011 as a cutoff point. Before 2011, the north of Syria, huge drought. Drought which was manufactured by the state. I think uh, Francesca de Chatel has written about this, about the way in which, you know, the, the mismanagement of water, which compelled people to leave their neighborhoods. And then you have Duma in a, a suburb of, of uh, Damascus, or, or Reef Damascus, countryside of Damascus. Um, industrial base, but then the government, because it's pursuing a more neoliberal agenda with Bashar al-Assad, opens up the economy to the Turkish economy. Turkish goods are imported in, decimates the local neighborhood of Duma. Again, you know, uh, problematic. And, and, and it's countless. You go through the different areas of Syria and you find the same repeated pattern. And the revolution was a call of people who were saying, we're tired of the way in which the central nation state is governing us. We want something different. And that difference was calling to dignity and social justice and a, a sense of, we want our neighborliness back. Mm -hmm. And when we look at the religious kind of uh, slogans which were used, a lot of the time, it talked about that. And I would argue that, you know, religions are also about uh, seeking that neighborhood or that sense of neighborliness 
how we encounter with other people. I mean, from the Islamic tradition, um, you know, uh, one of the great philosophers is uh, Al-Ghazali from the 11th century, right? So Al-Ghazali said one of the key virtues, and he was big on virtue ethics, huh? Al-Ghazali. So Aristotle belongs as much to us as he does to Europe. And uh, Al-Ghazali says, um, you know, behaving honorably to your neighbor, irrespective of whether he is Muslim or not, is a key virtue. It's a fundamental virtue of Islam. Right? So, in displacement, when people are looking to emplace themselves, they are seeking neighborhood. And in the Islamic tradition, again, this is referred to as jiwar. Again, there's a rich tradition of this in the Islamic tradition about granting protection to the one who is seeking neighborhood. I mean, how do people go about that? And you cannot, uh, you know, grant someone this sense of neighborliness if you prevent them from working. Yeah? If you don't allow them to be fully human. And this is what I was saying at the beginning. If, if you have this humanitarian uh, logic, okay, which is governing the humanitarian field, which says host and guest, then that person can never transform into neighbor. Mm. Mm -hmm. And unless that person transforms into neighbor, once they become your neighbor, uh, you've got to put up with them. You know, noisy neighbors, good neighbors, you just have to deal with them, right? But they are allowed to kind of work. So then we have to think about, in terms of an economic response, what works best. And for me, I'll say it straight, capitalism doesn't do that. Yeah? So any sort of capitalist response, a neoliberal response to this, and we have to be careful about humanitarianism, because again, the refugee is often posited as an end user, as a customer. And when you have that, you cannot go beyond. You're stuck within this logic. It reproduces itself. So, Thank you. Thank you. Um, other questions? Yeah. Uh, Jean, yes, thank you. Can we wait for the microphone? Thanks. Jean Duff, the Joint Learning Initiative. Could members of the panel propose examples of faith-based organizations who are directly supporting self-reliance uh, uh, activities such as being described. Thank you. Fatih, do you want to take this? Faith-based organizations. Faith-based organizations supporting self-help. Are you talking in a refugee context or a general context? In terms of the values paradigm um, that uh, both Fadi and Tahir have outlined for us, uh, where uh, these autonomous, uh, self-directed, self-help, um, refugee-centered activities, and, and whether there are examples um, of uh, faith-based organizations of, of any kind, religious, faith-based INGOs, coming in behind them, uh, working to their goals, working to their priorities. Like many NGOs, we understand it's important to do development work and to empower people. Uh, we've done projects like that in um, Gaza and in West Bank and others. 
But when you are giving jobs to refugees, sometimes that causes problems with that particular government. As you know, in the situation of Lebanon, uh, many of the Palestinian refugees for decades haven't been allowed to do many of the jobs over there. So we have to work. Right now, unfortunately, our main focus in Syria is just to help to keep people alive with food and with medicine. Um, inside um, uh, Lebanon, we are helping with um, education projects. But again, you have to be careful when, even when you do vocational training that the people who do the vocational training are eligible to get jobs at the end of that. So we're big on vocational training, but my question is always, what are they going to do with that? I am aware that there is, as Tahir mentioned, in the Turkish border, there's a lot of this going on. People by themselves are doing their own jobs, and there are different um, organizations doing it. But I would say, as a representative of an international faith-inspired or based organization, I have to abide by the local law in that country which means I was told I cannot hire Syrian doctors inside Jordan because the Jordanian government won't allow that. So uh, my heart and my faith prayers are with them, but I have to abide by local laws in that country. I can add to that by saying that most of these initiatives are led by local groups, whether they are faith-based or not secular or don't know what their identity is. But because usually, exactly what uh, Anwar said, usually the local initiatives are uh, more able to maneuver around local regulations and are more able to uh, mobilize money for uh, similar initiatives because most of the time their funding is private funding, not institutional. When you are getting institutional funding from the American government or the British government or whatever donor, you have to abide by the local laws while local initiatives are able to work more in these uh, uh, initiatives. Also, what I have noticed is that these local organizations tend always to... Uh, they don't deal with the crisis as a business opportunity, which uh, they don't go after the big contracts uh, of distribution food. Yeah, we have a lot of our friends and partners who refuses to go into the big contracts with UN agencies or with uh, big uh, donors to distribute foods because they don't see that the food distribution is a, a solution for the problem. They, they go into more uh, like in, uh, encouraging initiatives like uh, agriculture, uh, reviving of the local economy, which is also maybe here, it is a very uh, noticed dynamic that the humanitarian works most of the time is destroying local economy. When in a protracted crisis like Syria, in the northern part of Syria, we've seen now for years international organizations keep distributing food without any real efforts they, to revive the local economy, to help people restart their own local businesses that they used to have before the war. Uh, usually the excuse is it is still early for early recovery phase and development projects. It is uh, still uh, a crisis situation, so we don't, we cannot invest in this. While people just want to get back their dignity, they don't want to be recipient of aid and uh, uh, part of food parcels forever. I just want to say that if you're, if the interest is particularly in the names of specific organizations, one of the um, 
one of the references that we all received to look at the Syria case study has actually a list of some of those faith-based organizations. Um, and also to look out for the IHH and the Aid foundations. They've been doing quite a bit of work uh, with Syrian refugees um, and internally displaced people. Uh, I'd just like to kind of come back on what Anwar was saying and I just, you know, uh, I remember speaking to a Jesuit priest in, in Athens and um, we were in conversation with uh, somebody from Caritas about the possibility of setting up a, a cooperative which would allow refugees to work and uh, the Caritas representative was a little bit unsure and the Jesuit priest reminded him that, you know, sometimes this is what we do, we break the law because the law is not just the law gave us apartheid. The law gives us, you know, uh, uh, lots of problems around the world. Yeah, so we have to be careful about thinking about this. And and in terms of uh, which organisations are are kind of involved in this, I think, as I said, I was speaking about diaspora. And with diaspora, it's where in that network the faith-based organizations are. And a lot of the time, it's at that resource, uh, kind, of, kind of attracting those resources, finding the money. So in the UK, there's lots of fundraising events where people raise money, you know, large amounts, significant amounts of money. And then that is distributed through these diaspora networks to reach and support the self-reliance networks, which is all happening underneath the, the bigger humanitarian kind of architecture and isn't necessarily mapped and perhaps doesn't want to be mapped as well. Um, and then the other thing, again, what, just to kind of add to what Fadi was saying just there, uh, about humanitarianism and its interventions inside Syria, you've got to remember that it's also fueling a war economy. You know, it's not just destroying what's existing here, it's fueled a war economy, which is very powerful, and we're talking about control of roads, uh, production of, uh, you know, uh, cannabis in uh, in Lebanon is, is a part of this. I mean, it's it's huge. It runs to the bi uh, millions of dollars. There's a there's a very good report on this by the LSC, uh, I think from last year, which looked at the war economy in Syria. We are uh, shortly out of time. I'm going to ask maybe to ask one more question, but we're not, probably not going to have time to answer it, but it would be good to have it on the table. We are going to have a roundtable opportunity at the end of the day where we'll return. So maybe let's thank you. Let's get your question here. Hi, I'm Lara Senior. I'm with uh, Oxfam. I work on our local humanitarian leadership. Um, and as I was just um, wondering about this finding a solution to the conflict through religion. You were saying it's very difficult to think about. Um, but I was thinking since we have all you fabulous panelists here today, if we could maybe have a few insights about um, if there is a role for religion in finding a solution. Um, you know, maybe it's a less conventional approach. We've, you know, you've reminded us that it's, Syria is not just about Muslims, it's also about Christians um, and maybe other minorities. Um, so maybe the solution is about thinking about it in a different way. So if you could provide maybe some insights. Sure. Thank you. So Laura just asked the question of the um, millennium, 
<laughs> appropriately. Uh, and I think that is the question, what can we think about? What can we actually do? And I am gonna postpone the response to that till maybe let's pick it up at the round table um, to think about kind of what now concretely might we do with this information. So thank you for sharing it. I think it's appropriate that we um, had a conversation about neighborliness here, conversation about uh, challenging the silos about who we think are our neighbors and who we are accountable to, realizing that the wider expansive understanding of that notion of neighborliness really is the heart of hope. And uh, again, I want to thank our panelists for this remarkable presentation today. So please, let's give another round of applause to them.